Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. This is episode 66, and we're joined by a repeat guest, a very special guest. Her name is Amira Napier, and she has a channel called Empathic Times on YouTube. Um, I followed her on Twitter. That's how I originally crossed paths with her. And she was on episode 42, so I go back and encourage my audience to go back to episode 42 and watch Amira's content. Subscribe to her channel, Empathic Times. I'm going to link everything in the episode description. And um, I'm going to keep saying that because she has a truly independent uh, mind and her channel reflects those um, variety of thoughts. And so I just want to say welcome back to the show and we appreciate your acceptance of our invitation. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I love having these conversations. So I'm really excited to be here. Yes. And before we get started, I just want to say, Subscribe to my channel too, obviously. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I really mean that because um, it doesn't cost you a dime to do that, um, to, su to support these independent um, media outlets. Uh, we really do have original content and it's hard to find that now, like original thought and free thought. And, and that's the whole premise of this forum. And so it was refreshing to cross paths with the mirror because um, I was thinking, are there other people doing similar types of content? Um, she does it in a in a different way, but I definitely get the into the independent feeling and the sentiment. And I, I take away so much knowledge and information when I watch all of her interviews and her videos that she posts. So again, please subscribe to her channel, Empathic Times, and Kiko's Free Thinkers Swarm as well. It doesn't cost you anything at all. Um, you're supporting your, you know, your blue team, red team alliance, your, your mainstream media, your favorite talking points on there. So why not subscribe to us too or whatever? What <laughs> does shock your mind a little bit? Oh, wow. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I brought Amira back on, honestly, because we didn't talk about this topic as much in the detail um, as I wanted to, but that wasn't the point. Like it was more so geared towards Amira's blog. Um, a couple of articles that she had written about previously about this so-called left and this infighting with the left. And um, we may touch a little bit on just what's going on now with the upcoming 2024 circus around the corner. Um, but I want to dedicate this mainly to um, the issue around Palestine. Um, as far as I've always known, I have a, probably a very different experience with this. But being a black person in the United States, when I was a young black kid growing up and I saw news about Palestine, it was always portrayed in a very negative sentiment. Um, and I always wondered, like, why was that the situation? Like the way the news just kind of created this one sort of idea around Palestine. And then you have automatically it's on all black, white, good, bad. And it mm -hmm. seems to be that kind of thinking that goes on with these types of topics. And honestly, it caused a trauma in me because to the point where it's probably the biggest topic that I've never felt as comfortable talking about. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way our news has sort of programmed us and the mm -hmm. way people react when you say things about Palestine or Israel. And yeah. so I just wanted to open up, um, first of all, and get you to share the audience what is Amira Napier's backstory, first of all, before we even talk about? 
Yeah, so um, my father is a Palestinian refugee. He was born in 1946, so this was right at the very beginning of when everything was starting to happen in Palestine. Um, Jews were provided kind of some settlement areas within that within that region at that time. But then everything really started to balloon. And by the time he was about two, two and a half, him and his family had to flee to Jordan. Um, they lived in refugee camps and that experience that my father shared with me as I got older really did shape my my worldview because I was growing up in uh, the San Francisco area for a time when I was a lot younger. And this was during um, like a little bit after like the Gulf War, I had siblings that were dealing with a lot of racism, even though we were in like kind of a more liberal area of San Francisco. And my parents really wanted to find a way to get us into a place that wasn't, you know, as highly populated and kind of getting us into like the country. But what happened was that we kind of left discrimination and racism in one area to only meet it in another. And as I was growing up, because I looked a little bit different from a lot of my friends, but also looked like a specific demographic of um, of people within the, the area that we lived in, because they were they there was a lot of immigrants, they did a lot of the farm work, a lot of the labor that, you know, lots of people don't want to do because it's not super glamorous. Um, I had this like dual experience of dealing with a lot of racism and discrimination because I was Arab, because as soon as your name comes up in class and the teacher can't pronounce it, they start asking you questions of like, oh, what is this name? Like, where where does this come from? And when I was a lot younger, I would just say, oh, it's Arabic. It means princess because I was really proud of my name. And I I, I thought other people would find that really interesting. But it was as soon as you started to say, oh, it's Arabic, that they were like, oh, so from a really young age, I was like, why, why am I experiencing these, these dual issues of once I say what my name and background is, there's this very standoffishness, kids start to kind of pick on you a little bit. And then if I didn't say anything, I a lot of times experienced people coming up to me and like speaking Spanish. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't I don't speak Spanish. And it was because we had a very large Hispanic population where I was growing up. And so it seemed to like not matter whether or not you were Arab or Hispanic, both were very kind of, you know, shunned. So I kind of got this dual experience of what racism and discrimination was like at a young age. And then as I got older and was learning from my dad about his background and about our family, um, because my, at that time, my father was really the only one of his family that came here. I learned a lot about just the trials and tribulations that my father experienced and the trauma of living under occupation. And it was at that same time that I really started to learn about the history of my father's family that 9-11 happened. And so it coincided with a time of very heightened rhetoric and propaganda being promulgated within the media, whether it was the news, whether it was movies and TV shows that really started what I now know is the othering tactics. And this isn't 
it's not something new media and, and news have done this for, you know, generations upon generations. It's happened with, um, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, the Irish, um, also with like Jewish people and, and doing these very stereotypical things of groups of people. And at the time of nine 11, it was, it was very difficult for me because I was trying to learn the history of my family, which isn't an easy one because at that time, my father's family was just dealing with a lot of stuff, um, being in Israel, being in Palestine, and all of the things that were going on there. And then also coinciding with my own personal experience growing up in a very red area of Northern California, experiencing you know racism and discrimination before 9-11, and then 9-11 happens, and it was just kind of this like wave of whoa like where where is all of this coming from and i really started to see people shift and it was like as soon as they find out that you're arab as soon as they find out that you're you know especially the conversation about palestine started to come up more and more and more post 9 11. there was just so much angst so much animosity and hostility that i was experiencing and on that, on, a, on my previous interview with you, I talked about how on the day of 9-11, I went to school and everyone's, you know, really stressed and sad and, and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. And I had barely left my, my house that morning to go to school, which started at probably like 8.15. And in the news, they were already talking about, oh, these are, you know, Arab terrorists and we need to, you know, go and get them and stuff like that. And I then proceed to go to school and I'm in, I believe it was my first class. It was a French class. And because my name is different and unique, people knew I was Arab. And my professor, my teacher knew that I was Arab as well. And she was a former IDF soldier. And when I went to class that day, she stood in front of the entire class, a former IDF soldier teaching French and said, this isn't directed at you, Amira, but all Arabs are bad and deserve to die. And it was one of those experiences where I'm like, I'm in a classroom. I was, I think 13, 14 at the time. And it was the start of really experiencing racism and no one giving a crap because I even went to the principal, I went to the counselor, I told them what had happened. The teacher got zero reprimand and I was basically given a checkout list for my locker. They didn't care because everyone was so angry, everything was so heightened. And that's usually what happens, especially here in America, because it's really the only thing I can, I can speak to. We get such heightened rhetoric about the good and the bad it's them versus us and that was really the start of that rhetoric when it came to the arab world and it really had an effect on me it was it was definitely a trauma that you know i carried with me i, I probably will carry with me for the rest of my life because it wasn't the first time and it or that was the first time but it wasn't the last time that i literally had a professor in a a capacity of they're an adult they're supposed to be you know the the appropriate one in the room and having to deal with disrespectful comments towards myself towards um islam and muslims and it was just it was one of those experiences that really stayed with me and it powered me to 
go to college and learn about what is this? Like, what is causing this? And that's what really led me down the path of learning about media propaganda, because that's where so much of that came from. People were regurgitating the same things that they saw on the news, the going to smoke them out of their holes. Um, You know, they would make really derogatory terms like calling you a a sand N-word, you know, asking like where your turban is and where's your hijab and all of this stuff. And it, and it was definitely a time that made it difficult for me to, I think, kind of acclimate because I had a very old worldview at home. You know, you're taught in a very traditional, semi-conservative way, but then you're at school, you're with your peers and they want to, you know, be doing different things that like my parents would just say, absolutely not, you're not doing that. So it made it really difficult in some time, in some aspects of my life to feel connection to my community and to my peer group. And it certainly didn't help the more that I learned about propaganda and I was diving into Israel and Palestine and what was going on there because I had such a different worldview from what everyone else was being taught through the media. So I know that was kind of long. I'm sorry. But like in a nutshell, you know, that's that's kind of a a brief overview of that of that experience. No, that's awesome. That's what I love about you is that you don't just give like a small like answer. No, it's 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 a conversation. So um, it's usually and I know it's weird because a lot of my personal friends are so not accustomed to me sitting back and listening to other people. (laughs) And so this has been like therapeutic for me because it gives me a chance to be a better listener. But you learn a lot when you listen. And it, and I talk a lot, so it's good to sit back and, and listen to people, you know, every once in a while, too. Um, no doubt. I think that's really important, especially for people to uh, keep the context very fresh. And um, and I could say 10 times to go back and watch episode 42. I don't know if anyone's going to do it, but I, I think it's necessary, you know, um, when we get these guests on to definitely check out the content so you can have the context. So everyone's on the same point. We don't have to keep backtracking. But no, this was relevant to get the background, um, a small portion of your background, just so people can understand what we're talking about here. And that's one thing that I think about, too. We don't even get personal stories from Palestinians and Palestinian Americans. It seems like every time, it seems like the Israel position, whatever that is, is the default. Yes. It seems like that's all just like the um the stuff that's going on right now with Ukraine and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um Martin Harpiti and Wilson in episode one, um, who's actually Armenian descent, but he's of Spaniard too. He lives in the States now. Um, he would get this in Spain where he would hide his um his Armenianness and he would basically like he's a Spaniard. But he, people call him the Eastern, all this stuff. So you guys can go back to the very first episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum, and you have these sorts of attitudes. But the point being is that he was saying, if this was Kenya, would we be funding Kenya the same way we're funding Ukraine? Is there an inherent bias automatically because it's a European country, a white European country, that we have this sympathy that we normally wouldn't have for a country like Palestine or a country like Kenya or a country like Somalia. Yeah. Do you agree with that? 
I, I completely agree. I think the minute that you start to have conversations with people outside of the norm, it humanizes them. And our government and our media certainly don't have an impetus to want to humanize Middle Easterners, um, Africans, I would even argue, you know, South Americans, and certainly like right now, Russians. Um, because when you break down those barriers and you do learn more about people, it's the you realize there's more that brings us together than than separates us. And I think that that's been the biggest thing with media propaganda. And that's I always go back to that just because that's something that I really try to focus on a lot. But that's where we have so much of this division coming from. That's why people do have an automatic support for Israel or automatic support for Ukraine, because the media is not only telling them to, but it's the most prominent voices that you hear in the room. From my own personal experience, I've I've been to like conferences where it says this is going to be an Israel Palestine panel and we're going to have people that represent Israel and people that represent Palestine and bring them together and have a conversation. And it's one of those things where it's like, yes, okay, this is great. There were seven individuals on a panel. One of them was said to be Palestinian. When I went up to him at the end, he said, oh, I'm actually not Palestinian. I'm from, uh, I think he was like, I'm from Lebanon and my mother is like half Palestinian or something like that. And it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not trying to be like a bitch and be like, you know, well, you should be Palestinian if you're going to talk on <laughs> Palestine. But I was like at the time, because this was in like 2008, I'm like, it would be nice if you had more than one person speaking on behalf of Palestine. And if you actually had a Palestinian within that capacity, because you bring nuance, you bring a diverse perspective to the conversation. But in so many different areas, I mean, you brought up a good you know, example with like Somalia, also Armenia. The, these, are, these are also regions where we don't wanna humanize people. We don't wanna talk about what they're really going through because then it gets people to think, oh, like I've been lied to. I don't know about this, but I probably should. And these are humans just like me with everyday experiences just like myself. And that's, that's where it's like, I hope that as independent media continues to grow, that more and more of these kinds of conversations can be had because it brings that humanistic aspect to the conversation that I think we're just, we're missing so much. And it's, once you bring humanism into this, it's like, then it makes the need for war and aggression seem like maybe we, this isn't something we should be doing because these aren't the enemies that you that you think they are. It's it's government leaders, it's elitists that are, I would argue, our enemy because they're the ones that are dividing us, using resources as a guise of, oh, we need to go over there and, you know, get these people out of this regime or we need to go do a coup. And it's like, well, there's a lot more to those reasons to do those things, resources, people, all of those. Um, but yeah, it's I, I completely understand what he's, you know, experiencing as well. I had times where I was trying to hide my Arabness as well because it was just I had experienced so much negativity when I said that I was Arab and especially when I said that I was Palestinian to the point where I was just like, you think whatever you think I am. Like, if you think I'm Hispanic, sure. If you think I'm French, sure. I had a couple people thought I was Indian and I was like, Sure. Like, because it was just, I got to the point where I was like, I don't want every experience that I have with new people to be off putting because that was what so for, for a good, like probably five or six years, 
it was just incessant. It just on and on and on. And it was like, people would be nice to you until they knew who you were or what your background was because they have these preconceived ideas of, oh, so all Arabs are terrorists or all Muslims are ultra conservative and want to lock up their women and, you know, things like that. And so I think bringing that that humanism to people is what the media doesn't want to do, but it's what we most absolutely do need to do. And I appreciate that you you bring so many diverse voices onto your show, because I think that's the one of the most important things. Well, to that last point you just made, the reason why I do that is because I've um, in my personal life, I've gotten a lot of this and I know you have too, where um, and the media and and just people in general capitalize off of these these signals and these symbols. Um, the thing that kills me the most about politics is just the bullshit symbolism. And yes. um, this notion that somehow one black person in particular, whatever, represents every black person in the space. Or, you, you know, it, this can pertain to anybody. Rashida Tlaib, for instance. Okay, she's Palestinian. Does that mean she's going to think like other Palestinians? And, and But the example that most people have, at least in my experience, I'm from Tennessee. And it, regardless of being a red state, blue state, all that shit to me doesn't even matter anymore because it's more so who are you hanging around in your circles? And mm -hmm. so for a lot of people that I meet, for some white people that I meet, I'm the only black person that they interact with regularly. And so for them, I don't know how it is for them. So you're going to base things through like black experiences through Kiko, but I'm one person. And I couldn't be any different than some of the other people that I know. And you have a lot of that going on. And so that's the reason why I try to bring pe different people on, because we have to break down those stereotypes, because a lot of people aren't ignorant by choice, I don't think. They're ignorant because they haven't been exposed to enough different experiences. And so to, to sort of break down and show more nuance to those perspectives, you have to bring in different types of Black people, different types of you know, mm -hmm. whoever it is. And that sounds simple, but that I believe is what we're being confronted with a lot in this country too. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that comes from a lack of diversity when it comes to politics, you know, businesses. So, you know, like big corporations, mid-sized corporations, even like small businesses. And then of course the media, like the, the more diverse perspectives you have, the more nuance you're going to have in character depictions. Because media is one of the best ways to get to people, like you said, that like maybe they don't know any black people, maybe they don't know any Arab people, but by giving them a character that they can think about and visualize that isn't this, you know, one, very stereotypical character or caricature of themselves um it, it provides them a, a different perspective on oh okay that's what that person could possibly could possibly look like and that's i think it i i hope that we continue to see more of that kind of diversity within especially politics because you bring up a great point, you know, with like Rashida Tlaib. She's one of those what I would call like token diversity people. She's really <laughs> happy to take on the mantle of look at me, I represent Palestine. But are you actually going to make any push 
to the people that support you, your followers, the people that voted you in? Are you really going to show them, I will stand on this pedestal for Palestine. I will stand on this pedestal for the working class, low income earners. Like, you know, it's like, what pedestal are you going to stand on? And what are you going to, to fight for? And she's one of those individuals that I'm like, it, it seems like she picks and chooses her battles if they even really are a battle because so many of them walk things back and end up just pushing more establishment rhetoric. And that's where I just, I've lost all faith in, you know, the squad because I'm like, you guys look great. You look like you are diverse, which you are. It's like visually, yes, you're diverse, but you're not diverse in the way that you think. You're not diverse in in what you're bringing to the table. And that's because you're not gonna get that far in politics if you're not falling in line with what they want you to say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wish there was more individuals representing a lot of the diversity of every diverse group, you know, because we need we need more of that. I just don't know how we how we do it, like you said, because it is so difficult because it pushes people out of their comfort zone to be at the table with someone that has had such a differing experience from them. And I don't know if it's the ego. I don't know if it's you know, fear or narcissism or, you know, like whatever it is. Um, it's that like, it's like people are okay being entertained. People are okay having, you know, diversity in, in certain areas, but it's like, if they're at the table next to you, if they're, if they're at that boardroom table, or if they're at that restaurant table, are you going to actually look at them as an equal? And I think that that's something we're still trying to figure out and deal with today that isn't going to get solved until, we do have a lot more diverse representation in in all areas and not just oh this person's diverse so let's bring them in it's like let's also incorporate like meritocracy in there like are you actually good at your job are you actually a good politician are you actually a good actor or screenwriter or you know things like that because that will i think improve everything in the long run but it's it's trying to get people to understand that that's what we need to kind of get that ball rolling i think yeah, um, I won't get into too much what you just said there. I'm mean, not co-sign what you said, but it's just <laughs> it's clear that the that the average U.S. person that votes in this country is pretty damn ignorant because, I mean, they use the, these symbolistic tactics and they work every time. Um, mm -hmm. And I refuse. And I was talking to a friend the other day about this. At one point, I wanted to get into politics, but you know what? I just. I can't kiss the ass. I can't do it. Um, <laughs> and I know that's exactly what, and that's what these people are doing. They're kissing their, they're kissing people's asses. If they look like me and they're your favorite politician, they've kissed a lot of ass to get to where they are because this mm -hmm. system is set up for you not to have um, any sort of divergences with people that you work with that are supposed to be on your team, this political team. That's mm -hmm. never encouraged. Like you're always encouraged to support the team you never support the people and consider what they want. You always support your team first. And then if the people say something, if enough people on your team agree with it, then we may be able to make a couple of concessions, but never the actual, you know, full piece of the pie. And so that's yeah. kind of how the system works right now. But I wanted to get back to um, the issue of Palestine and bring into my audience just an explanation to someone who may not even know anything about the region. What is like the history that kind of got us from this point in the first place 
um, let's just say in the 40s when Israel became a state in the first place and the whole idea of Israel and um, the whole idea of the Palestinian territory is basically just shrinking more and more or what was Palestine just shrinking more? Yeah, I mean... There's, there is a lot of history there, so I will try to condense it as much as I can. I think for anyone that's like new to the Palestine-Israel situation, the, the whole reason why this is kind of where it is today is because following World War II and the atrocities that were inflicted against the Jewish population um, during the Holocaust, all of like the the world's nations knew that they needed to provide like a safe haven, that, that they needed to allow Jews a place to just kind of have some safety. And the the Arab world was not new to providing safe haven for people throughout, you know, the history of especially like during the Ottoman Empire, there were a lot of different religions that found safe haven within the Ottoman Empire that they couldn't find within Europe. So um, and that also inc included people that were followers of Judaism. So when it come when it came to post World War Two, Israel was or Palestine was looked at as a region that was they were willing to accept I think it was between like 45 and maybe 80,000 might have been a little bit less, but they were willing to to bring in about that many people um, to provide them with safe harbor. And what started to slowly happen was that as the that at that time the ottoman empire was was like it pro pretty much in like complete decline and what happens with empires is that there's a lot of infighting so there was a lot of infighting between the different arab nations there's power control going on and um the us and the eu and britain worked really well in keeping that division going and having like brother fight against brother uh because that's really what they love to do and they used that moment of the Palestinian people being willing to provide uh, some space for for Jewish people to say, okay, now we're just going to keep bringing more in. And that was when the Palestinians were starting to be like, okay, like what's what's going on here? We, we said we would do this many, but they weren't expecting to basically like take every person that said, I wanna go to, to Palestine because I'm a Jew and I need safe harbor. They were not prepared for that. It's a very small region. And then it turned into religious doctrine and ideology of who really deserves and should be in this area and Jerusalem especially I mean you can go back you know a thousand years it's a very contested area between Islam Judaism and Christianity this is where the, those three religions basically started so as I'm sure lots of people can understand there's lots of religious ideology that's fighting and or not fighting but it's like amping up certain bits of rhetoric of like who deserves what but the thing is is like the palestinians were were already there and settled that was that was their land that was their country um but over time in 1948 and then also in you know the the 50s as as you move forward there were so many different points of aggression between the palestinians and the the Israelis, I guess you would call them at that time. Um, but because Israel was starting to be formed 
and they were getting so much monetary backing from especially like Britain and the US, they were just able to overtake and overpower the Palestinian people, because the Palestinians were not, you know, they don't have a standing army, they don't have, you know, the weaponry and, and that is still the same thing to this day. But it's also the push that happened with the settlers coming in and building settlements. And that was something that really started to amp up what was going on in the region. And it was why for a time there were lots of, you know, what people would call terrorist attacks, um, people being suicide bombers for, you know, a while, because like I said, Palestinians didn't have and still don't have a standing army. The, the groups that they have like Hamas are what they consider their like rebel freedom fighter groups. But every other outside nation considers them to be a terrorist organization, a very convenient label to, to give. So because of that, the Palestinians fighting against what they saw as continued encroachment into their land, into their holy spaces, and the building up of settlements, taking land, taking water, decimating orchards and orchards of olive trees. And olive trees are a, a very like, there, at least from my dad's point of view and and his family, it was like the olive tree really represents a lot to the, to them, um, from not just like a religious aspect, but just like from a cultural aspect. It was very important for them to have those trees because it represents the time for which they have been there. Because some of these trees were over like a hundred years old, and we're still seeing this today, where the Israeli military is coming in and they're plowing over like 100 year sometimes 200 year old trees that have been in these families for generations and it's that i always pose this after i say something like that is like what would you do if you're at home and a military force comes in pulls you out of your home bulldozes it builds over it and puts you behind a wall how is that going to make you feel and that's what palestinians have been dealing with pretty much since 1948 because they they have just been pushed and pushed and pushed their land has been taken from them and what started as we're totally willing to provide some safe harbor for people it got it was like a you know no good deed goes unpunished and it was like they got punished for that good deed and it was all because of the the power backing Israel and the them wanting to create the formation of Israel and it's not just because because a lot of people will say, oh, well, they deserve Israel. It's, you know, that's where they're from. If you look at religious texts, this is where, you know, these Semitic peoples come from. But the thing is, is like all of the Semitic people come from there. The, the Arabs, the Palestinians, the Jews, the Christians, you could argue all of them have, have right to that land. Trying to find a way to have all of these different people come together and live together. I certainly don't have the answer for that. But what I would suggest for people is to not just immediately side with the state of Israel because it's what's so conveniently told to you in the media. It's that because it's so conveniently told to you in the media, you should question it a little bit. And the tactics that Israel uses against Palestinians, the, the United Nations and over 100 countries have said that these are violations of human rights. And, and that's seems to always kind of be a missing piece is the the focus is always on the the few palestinians that do horrific things i'm not going to deny that they haven't done things they have 
it's that they are responding to what they see as aggression and they do not have an outlet they have not to them they have no other means of defending themselves of defending their people their land and their heritage and that's why i think the media does what they do in continuing to push the rhetoric that supports israel and humanizing the jewish people but in the same breath dehumanizing the palestinians and it's yeah so i mean that's that's kind of like i said it, it's it's a lot of history it, there's a lot that's happened in the region and i would just say that you know don't just immediately assume if a palestinian has done something that it's just because they're a terrorist like rfk jr was really wanting to push a couple of months ago because it seems like he's really been kind of taken over by the israel lobby and he's pushing what i'm like i remember a lot of what he's saying now i'm like that's rhetoric from 2002 2003 2006 when a lot of tensions were happening in palestine because of the more building of settlements and also just the absolute indiscriminate killing of innocent palestinians there there are so many children that have died because of what Israel has done in that region. And these are not terrorists. They are children. They are babies. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I guess, I hope that was a concise enough kind of response to what, why that region is so rife for struggle and why there's so much tension because there's just, there's so much fight amongst ideology who gets what and you know some people still trying to push like a two-state solution that i just i do not think is going to to work until you deal with the israeli government because the the israeli government especially right now um is is getting more and more right wing to the point where they're they're pissing off their own people <laughs> sure. so um i think a reckoning will probably happen at some point but Palestinians have been dealing with this for for 75 years. And I am never remiss to say I I have a lot of disgruntledness and I and I feel like the Arab world has a lot of shame to account for because they have allowed this to happen to the Palestinians. It didn't have to go down the way that it did, but so many people were like, "Nope, we're not going to fight this fight anymore." And they've just kind of left Palestinians to to fend for themselves. And because those other outside countries, like especially a country like, you know, Egypt or Saudi Arabia, they're getting also coziness with Britain, EU and the US. They're benefiting from what is happening to the Palestinian people, because like so many other countries, you know, that's capitalism comes in and it becomes it becomes a money thing rather than a human thing. And it's sad to see what, you know, a couple generations ago were brothers and sisters, and now they're just, they're fighting each other and they're letting, they're letting their own die. And it's really heartbreaking. It's interesting, some of the stuff you're saying, because I, um, I also interviewed episode three, Ben said I got for, I interviewed Ben again. Ben's a personal friend of mine. We went to high school together. We grew up together. Ben is a Middle Eastern Jew. He actually grew up in Iran. Mm. And um, when we had the conversation, like I was telling you off camera, this is probably the most um, 
or I told you off camera because I said I want my audience to hear it. Uh, this is probably the most uncomfortable topic, not for me personally. I can talk about anything, but it's more so the ramifications of what you say because there, there's definitely some, uh, there's a censorship element with this. There is a self-censoring element involved with anything when you talk about Palestine and Israel. And if you're sympathetic towards the Palestinian side, you get way more, con you get the condemnation if you have a sympathy for the Palestinian side. That's what I've seen over the years. Now, in the 90s and 2000s, growing up as a teenager, I was just thinking to myself, is a lot of this is around the military, a lot of this is this military complex. And then you have mm -hmm. the complex already embedded in the capitalist system, but then you add on these layers of what well, this group is something else and this group is a different group. And that that plays on people visual, the visual, this ethnic stuff plays on people. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question I had is, first of all, when we talk about Jewish people, we're talking about not just Sephardic Jews from Spain and Portugal. We're not talking about um, Ashkenazi Jews we're talking about Middle Eastern Jews too, right? Are, are, are these the people we're talking about when Israel formed this state in 48? Are these white European Jews from the Holocaust going to Israel? Or is this Jews all over the world going to the state of Israel? Oh, so Israel has done a lot within their laws of allowing people that are Jewish, regardless of whether or not they actually have lineage within the region, to go to Israel and become a citizen of Israel and then live in the, the, the multitude of settlements that, that are there. There's been a lot of different people that have posted uh, videos and pictures and even like memes of, um, New York Jews that have left the United States that were born here that go to Israel and buy a home and get a job and become a citizen of Israel and they're still usually a citizen of the US. It's one of the the few um, groups of individuals that can have like dual citizenship and that's be and and that's something that the the Israeli government has done because they want to to build up their their population. A lot of people don't realize that the um, the Israelis are a minority group. They they are not a majority, and that's why Palestinians, especially like the Palestinians in Gaza, um, over two million and in basically an open air prison, they do not have rights as a citizen. They do not have freedom of movement, and they also can't like they don't vote. They don't have a voice to decide what happens within the country that they live in. And that's been a concerted effort by the Israeli government because they're they know that if if not even like a two state solution was to happen, but if it was just like majority rule kind of thing, they would they would not then be ruling. They would not be the one they would not be the ones in the power position and they continue to keep that position in a lot of different ways. It's by bringing people into the region that are not born there that don't have a historical connection to the region um as well as using their powerful position to instill the rhetoric we see a lot 
of the minute that someone's talking about the Israel-Palestine issue with a little bit more lenience on Palestine than Israel, they're anti-Semitic. We have to we have to cut them down. Um, you know, even things like, you know, professors at different universities being forced to sign a pledge that they're not going to say anything against the state of Israel. And it's like, okay, why? I don't know why that matters here in the United States, but, um, and it's because this is a, this is what someone does when they, at least from my experience, when they know that they're in the wrong and they don't want to have to take accountability for what they do. So it's the perpetual, like, I'm an, I'm a victim. We're victims of terrorism. We're victims of anti-Semitism. And woe is us, feel sorry for us. And it does always, you know, go back to understandably the horrific situation that Jews dealt with in the Holocaust. And that's something I will never deny. I mean, that was one of the worst things that could have happened. And I wish that it hadn't happened. It's also, though, not the first time that a group of people have basically been ethnically cleansed. And we could say this about the um, Native American Indians here in the United States. There was the Armenian massacre. There's the Bosnian massacre. Um, Belgian Congo. Exactly. It's like the list is so long. Um, but as I have always seen, it's the Holocaust that gets kind of the loudest voice in the room. And I, and I don't say this to be disrespectful. It's just from an observation that I've seen. It's where most of the focus goes. And, and I think that that just comes from a fear, which is completely understandable, generational trauma, which I understand. Um, I feel like I have generational trauma from my father having to experience what he experienced in Palestine. But I, for me, it's the it's the really sad transition that's happened over the last probably, you know, 30, 40 years where what's going on in Israel is very similar to what was happening in Germany against the Jews. And, and as soon as hopefully you won't get censored on YouTube for me saying this, but, you know, um, that's that's the dynamic that's unfortunately starting to, has been happening within Palestine is this ethnic cleansing that's that's going on and people don't want to think about it that way people don't want to think it's apartheid but it but it is and i if anyone's interested i do have a video um on my youtube channel where i talk about um the recently with i think it was rashida talib had talked about um or no it wasn't rashida talib it was ilhan omar mm -hmm. had called out israel and then had to walk it back and then they had to like pass a bill that, you know, Israel is not an apartheid state. So I talk about in that video, the fact that no, Israel actually is an apartheid state and here's why and here's how it works. But I also discussed in that, that when it comes to specifically apartheid, that conversation really sticks only when it's, we're talking about um, uh, South Africa mm -hmm. and it's like people want to keep it there, which is completely understandable, but it's also, we can't just act like this has only happened in one area or two areas, that there is enough evidence to support that Israel is acting as an apartheid state. And it comes from their treatment of Palestinians, the checkpoints that they have, the open air prison in Gaza, the very um, dis, uh, um, like very dismeasurable judicial system. So it's so much more against the Palestinians 
especially if a Palestinian was to do something against an Israeli versus when an Israeli has committed very horrendous acts. This was a recent thing in the news. Um, I can't remember the individual's name, but just indiscriminate killing of Palestinians because their government says that they can by allowing them to carry weapons. They can kill a Palestinian and it's barely, uh, you know, a slap across the wrist kind of thing. And it's that dual treatment, the disparity in treatment, the disparity in justice that gives more evidence every day that Israel is an apartheid state. It might not look identical to South Africa, but it has all of the same underpinnings because the goal is the same. The goal is to wipe out Palestinians from the region. And this is something that has been within the governmental doctrines of Israel for decades. There's lots of evidence to show that they basically have a map that they have been wanting to do, and they've almost successfully done it, but they're wanting to move more south and eastern so that they can just basically build up this entire region. And that's going to give the powers that actually fund them that bigger foothold in the region, because this is a region that we know is rife with resources as well. I mean, we've we've you've got oil, you've got minerals, you've got just power dynamics and the aspect that this is a, a, a very ancestral religious site for the three major religions of the world. So there's a lot of reasons why people want to have the power in that region. And Israel is that basically proxy state for these foreign nations to be able to to function in the region. Um, how long they will continue to get funding is, I think, a, a question that's going to continue as we bleed our, our own country dry funding the Ukraine war. But we also know that, you know, every single year there's a huge military budget package that goes to Israel um, for the Iron Dome, for their military funding. And every time that comes around, it's the amped up rhetoric of look at all of the anti-Semitism that people are experiencing. People don't like Israel and that's so sad and all of this stuff. And it's like, it's not that people don't like Israel, but yes, there are people that do, but it's like, look at what you are doing. You are killing and maiming innocent men, women, and children. You're purposely targeting the press and everyone but the United States and like the UK and parts of the EU have said that this is an apartheid state that is functioning in a racist way, in a, a subjugating way of keeping these people separated. And, and that's why this conversation just, it does, it gets so difficult to, to talk around, to dance around. And it's why I don't focus my channel completely on Palestine, even though I'm Palestinian because I just, I know the onslaught that's gonna happen. Um, and I already experienced a lot of censorship with my channel anyway. So it's just, it's like trying to pick your fight and pick your battle. Um, so I speak about Palestine when I can, but I also try not to have it be the, the absolute main focus because there's a lot going on too. <laughs> like there's so many people suffering and struggling. And um, I just, I hope that we can get to a more equitable world soon something you said though that, that's very important i think to differentiate every time you say the apartheid you say a state i think that's what people are lacking when amir says an apartheid state she's not talking about the people themselves in israel the mm -hmm. government is part mm -hmm. of the state that's 
that's how I believe that they've justified these wars because somehow all these people get lumped in with just this phase of corruption. Like these innocent people, these innocent kids, all just there to justify just their killings and stuff because people are associating them where they're they're bad anyway, they're corrupt anyway, but it's the governments. Our government is corrupt. We have yes. a corrupt government. So it's like, but I think it's something you said before, it would be too humanizing to, to point that out to people. You can't point out that they have people, their children, men and women, just like we do. We have to demonize them as much as possible as a pretext to go in there in the first place. Like that's, it's basically, it's propaganda is all it is. Yes. And at that point, the aggressor, which is us, because we're funding, and I question that sometimes, how strong would Israel be if it wasn't for all this outside funding constantly? And you have all this damn lobbying going on in DC, which is part of this whole gumbo of complicity and, and aggression. And it kind of goes to what Ben was saying, because I'm, I'll be honest with you, going back to Ben said again for, for a second, episode three, I thought he was going to throw me with just straight Israeli talking points. This, <laughs> I didn't know why I was going to get into it because it's hard when it's your friend. You don't know what's going to be said. But he basically said that the Israel-Palestine conflict is never meant to be resolved. Yeah. Because of, do you agree with that? Is, that is, is, is it that simple because the military complex is so reliant on this conflict that it's almost like they have to just keep it going just constantly? Very much so. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that um, your friend is definitely right in that the way that things are depicted to the people is very different from like the actualities on on the ground. Um, the Israeli citizens are a very propaganda propagandized people. They are fed so much lies about the people that live, you know, just across the, you know, just across the street or across the wall. And it's because and they have to do that. They have to perpetuate that propaganda in order to continue the cycle, like you said, for the military industrial complex. The military industrial complex benefits from every war. And that's why we have as many wars as we do. And that's why they're always trying to find a new target. So that's why, you know, as soon as Biden pulled troops from Afghanistan, all of us were like, okay, when's the next war? Where's that gonna be? And, and, and it turned into Ukraine. Um, and they, they continue to fund the Israeli government because it's it allows them to have a foothold in the region, like I said, but it also lets them have kind of a, a trigger to both like Russia and China, other, other you know, nation powers that we, of course, want to try to defeat and beat and, and all of that stuff. Um, and that's what the Israeli state I guess you could say is meant to be and and you're right I mean if if Israel didn't have the funding that they have from the United States I would actually feel really like scared for the people of of Israel the the everyday Israeli citizens that are just you know trying to go to work and go home and feed their kids and all of that stuff because they're going to be in a powder keg situation if or when military funding for them fails because they're going to have an entire region not just of the palestinian people but of the arab the rest of the arab world which is slowly but starting to kind of form back up especially when it comes to like bricks um and that's been one of the the big worries when it comes to 
the the BRICS situation because of so many different Arab countries starting to kind of not, you know, get super cozy, but they're getting close with China and Russia because they see them as the more allied nations that they could not only ally with themselves, but that they're going to benefit from, I would say, when the U.S. falls, because I think that that is a huge, huge likelihood. So the military industrial comp going back is, you know, the military industrial complex benefits from all of these from all of this stuff. And that's why the media pushes the propaganda that they do because they want to push the military industrial complex because that's where so many people get their money. That's where our politicians are getting the bulk of their money. I mean, we see these are positions that pay, you know, like between $100,000 and maybe upwards of like $200,000, depending on which political position you're in. But we see so many of these, these uh, officials go into office and then all of the sudden, in like five years, they're a multimillionaire. How do you do that? You do that by being on military committees and knowing exactly where wars are going to get started and what kind of arms you need to invest in. Do I do Vanguard? Do I do BlackRock? And they're all going to benefit from the military industrial complex, which is why they don't want to stop the war in Ukraine. Both parties are like, gun ho, let's do this. Even Bernie Sanders is capitulating to the war in Ukraine, which is just like, I'm not surprised, but I know lots of people that are surprised and sad and want their money back. And I'm like, this is what they do. These politicians, because of the structure of our government, because it's not what we think it is, there's no checks and balances. They're all just rubbing each other's backs and trying to make it look like they're not doing what they're doing. And so that's why every war that's been started, especially from like, you know, President Barack Obama, we went from two wars to seven under his presidency. Why did he do that? I would say because he needed to bow to the establishment and do what they wanted him to do because he wanted to stay in that position, but be a, oh, look at me, I'm diverse. You know, I'm the first black president. And it's sad because it's like, as someone who was really excited about that, it's it's ruined my excitement because I'm like, <laughs> you're you're just doing the same thing that they all do. And that's why, like you said, it's like, it's not about going into politics anymore. We need to completely change the way that our system works and have it actually work the way it's supposed to rather than all of these different politicians enriching themselves off of the backs of innocent people in so many different countries i mean if you you know when you show the the malnutrition and just complete emaciation of children in somalia or in yemen the minute you show that on the news People are going to be like, why are we doing this? Because this is what our tax dollars are funding. And that's why they can't show it. That's why the, the mainstream media is just so insidious and working alongside the government as we've seen. That's why social media companies are working alongside the government doing what they say, even if they know that they shouldn't, because they they all benefit from these wars. And that's where, for me, I get into this the it's why i call my channel empathic times because we're all humans but we're being led and governed by probably some of the worst of our humans because they are so narcissistic it's like machiavellian it's like there's they want power and it's like why do they want power it's not power to do good power to make change it's i want power so that i make the most money and that's where, you know, the capitalism conversation comes in and it's, you know, 
all of that. So our, our military industrial complex is why we are where we are and why there's so much othering us versus them, smoke them out of their holes kind of stuff, because that's who gets enriched by that system. We didn't touch much on this, but I, I think the nomenclature is important too. This um, this Semitic, anti-Semitic, this um, rhetoric and this, because from what I understand, Semitic originally applied to language, not people. Somehow over time, anti-Semitic became exclusively a Jewish thing which is which is something I don't understand because under that definition you're Semitic. Yes. Under that definition, people in Jordan and Syria and Israel and Palestine, all these people are Semitic people. Mm -hmm. So why so so how did it all of a sudden become if you attack Jewish people as anti-Semitic, but the it doesn't apply to this group of people. That would be like me saying to my black friends in Brazil, y'all aren't black, but I'm black because I'm from the United States. I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. But that's but that's what it sounds like to me. It there's this um there's been some kind of a power transfer, and and I understand. I'm not saying that the Holocaust did not happen. No one's saying that. But like you said before, what makes that like kind of the litmus test of all the atrocities in history? when there have been other ones before and after the Holocaust, and there will be more. And you also have these cultural genocides, not just the physical, like killing the people, but that's a genocide too. The genocide of ideas is a real thing too. Mm -hmm. When people have to basically transform their cultures to this dominant culture or whatever it is. But I don't know, what's your response to that about this Semitic, anti-Semitic, like how did this become a, a owning sort of thing and applies to Jews, but not anyone that's not a Jew. I I honestly don't know how it it kind of transitioned into what it is today. Um, but but you are right when it comes to like what is the definition of a Semitic, like what is that? And it's it is it's the people within the region of basically the Arab world. So people that are, um, you know, I would I would say like you know from like probably like you know Afghanistan and then you've got Iraq and then you go down and then you've got of course like Palestine I would say Egypt Lebanon Jordan Syria um, to some extent that would basically be this the Semitic peoples and the whole anti-Semitic thing I I feel like that started around the the nineties um, from from what I've been able to kind of explore because i i watch a lot of media to try to understand what the media is doing to our brains um, and why people think the way that they do and i know growing up in the 90s there was so much discussion around the holocaust around um you know learning about the history of judaism looking at the different you know atrocities that that they dealt with and stuff like that and it was everywhere it was in it was in the news, politicians would talk about it. And there were so many TV shows and movies that would dedicate sometimes like an entire, you know, two or three, maybe sometimes five episodes where, you know, they're going into an understandably very horrific situation. But I was also like, okay, why, why are they getting coverage and not, you know, why aren't we talking about slavery? 
why aren't we talking about what's happened with the Native Americans and the decimation of their land and their people and their culture? Same thing with the slaves, you know, like when it came to slavery and, you know, what like their their owners not letting them, you know, put their hair in a particular way, not letting them speak in their language, not letting them, you know, sing and dance and function the way that they did when they were back home, because that was the semblance of connection that they still had. And it's that's cleansing that's dehumanizing and that's basically creating this chattel in a way and i was always wondering why are we not talking about these other groups of people or if we did it was very very short and hardly ever recognized within media we learned about it a little bit in history class i remember we had like i think a full-on week where we talked about the holocaust and we never discussed the arab world I thought we were going to the teacher kind of alluded that we would so it's it's one of those things where it's it's hand in hand with the media educational institutions and the political structure because it feel it feels like at least from my experience from what i've observed from what i continue to observe it's this coziness between all three of those that is what's pushing what anti-Semitic to them is and what they're deciding this is what this means versus what it actually means. Um, because it, like people like myself, I've had other friends and family members that have been called anti-Semitic when they're talking about this. And it's like, uh, we're Semitic, so you've just offended me kind of thing. Um, so it's that, you know, it, it feels very pick and choosy to me of who gets to be a victim who gets to talk about their oppression and their victimhood versus those that it's like, well, that's an inconvenient narrative. That's an inconvenient victimhood. So we're just not going to talk about that. And I think that that's happened with, you know, a multitude of different cultures and peoples here in the United States and abroad of these are the approved victims and these are the unapproved victims. And I, I, like I said, I don't know exactly where it came from, but it feels to me like it's it got perpetuated in the early 90s by amping up that rhetoric and having it be something that like just constantly alluded to and then sometimes blatantly depicted in TV shows and movies where almost it didn't need to be there, but it was put there. And yeah, that's probably where I'll, I'll end that because I could go down a whole rabbit hole of what I think about like the Hollywood media complex and all of the different things that they do. But I would say if people want a starting point for where is all of this kind of subconscious immediate agreement for Israel coming from, overanalyze what you watch. Go back to TV shows, go back to movies and go back to news clips from that time and just see how much is just kind of inserted here and there. And you're going to get it because people have been very slowly but efficiently fed this is what's appropriate this is what we support and this is what we don't support and that's where i think all of that kind of started and came from yes um there's a, there's definitely also this mentality i know at least this applies to everybody you don't question authority too much I learned this from my dad. My dad always tells me, or he used to tell me, he's still with us, but he used to tell me a lot when I was a kid. When you start to test the powers, you, you will understand some. He, if you test the powers enough, you'll understand. And I noticed that 
this the Hollywood stuff is real, exactly. Like you said, I mean, there's definitely a connection. As a matter of fact, I think it's an issue with institutions, just mm -hmm. in general. It to me, mo pretty much all institutions have lost legitimacy. Um, you have the International Criminal Court. They they can pursue Vladimir Putin, but they can't do anything about helping Assange. They can't do anything. They can't condemn other. They can't condemn Israel's behavior. Mm -hmm. They can't condemn the U.S.'s behavior. So they pick and choose who they want to condemn and mm -hmm. sanction and go after. And then you have the United Nations. Like, what's the? What are they doing? What did they ever do? And these are national, like transnational organizations. And then you have organizations like the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which have almost served as just like these gatekeeping type organizations like these people are racist these people are nationalists but these people we have to surveil them a little bit but they may not be as extreme and I'm like who the fuck gives you the authority to tell someone who's extreme who's not as to me it's just all bullshit because it's a it's a way to set up a parameter to start to censor people and blackball people that you don't like mm -hmm. and that stuff started i was telling people this censor system, liberals are just as guilty as conservatives when you talk about the censor and stuff. Okay, the liberals are okay. And I'm just speaking very generally. I'm I'm very pro-human rights. Sure, I am. I agree with liberals on that. Sure, you can express what you want. You can be what you want sexually. I completely agree with that. But the same token, you can't condemn a conservative for saying something that you don't like either and then cheer for that person and get kicked off television or whatever because their views, I mean, do you believe in free speech or not? I understand you don't want your books banned, but you don't need to be banning this person's speech either. Like, we got to be able to, like, see both sides of something. And then mm -hmm. some people would take that as like, well, Kika, you're justifying hate speech. I'm, well, what is hate speech? Define that to me and tell me where um, the free speech isn't protected. Tell me where this is not protected or whatever. You have Nazis protesting in Florida a month ago. I mean, they're allowed to do that. I don't fucking like Nazis, but they're allowed to pick it on the street. No one can, the Klan's been doing that. So it's like, what what are we going to do about it now? We know that we haven't done anything about it. So why are you complaining about that? So the Klan can march down the street, but you're mad about a guy or a gal on television talking shit that you don't like? To, like, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's like, that can't be allowed. How is that allowed and that's not allowed? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I think people pick and choose what they want to emphasize and what they don't want to emphasize. And I think that's where this conversation around terminologies and once you start playing at the people, it really gets um, scary because you know that there's a threat. Mm -hmm. If you scare this person and piss them off enough, if they have enough power, they can you know, silence you or at least attempt to do that to you. Of course, I, the censorship conversation is is definitely a big one, as you know, I'm sure we're both experiencing and we've seen on Twitter and also <laughs> on YouTube, you know, it's people do they want to break down and silence those that they don't feel uh, agree with them. And what's so mind boggling to me, um, I graduated from law school, I know a lot about the law there are very specific parameters of what is considered hate speech. And that is when you are inciting violence or harm to another individual or individuals or, or basically like group of people. 
it's very specifically delineated in the law. Now, I'm I'm not a huge like lover of the law. I think we have a lot of issues with our legal system, but that's one of the areas where we actually have very clear and concise rules. It's also where, you know, defamation and libel comes from when it comes to censorship or saying that someone did something that didn't didn't do that thing. We have very clear parameters for that. And I um I actually wrote a blog piece of gosh, two, three years ago now, when Trump was getting taken off of Twitter. And I and I argued in that piece, I'm like, whether or not you agree with Trump and you like him or not, that is not what entails whether or not someone is allowed to speak. The fact that private companies are prohibiting speech that at that point was not inciting violence or inflicting harm on another individual or individuals or group of people. It was just him saying stupid shit and like people are going to stay stupid, say stupid shit. But the best way to deal with speech that you don't like is to allow more speech. It's not to relegate it. It's not to say, oh, only these people that talk in these specific ways are going to be allowed to speak. That is fascism. And for a group of people that are so worried about democracy and like we're losing our country and that's why, you know, Biden needs to stay as a president. I'm like, you're doing the very thing that you say that you are against. And just because someone says something that you don't like, it always bugs me. I'm like, that doesn't make that person a bad person. We all have prejudices. We all have stereotypes. We all have idiosyncrasies that make us think and do things. We're going to say the wrong thing. I've said tons of things that are wrong and had to apologize for them. My whole thing is like, just be honest that you're not like the person that's trying to say like, oh, down to these conservatives. It's like, I get that they're saying something that you don't like that makes you uncomfortable, but just because you have discomfort doesn't discredit what they're saying. It's what they think. It's what they believe. And they believe it for a reason. And it's like, if you want to change the hearts and minds, you have to meet people where they are. And that seems to be the biggest issue right now, where it's like some groups are lagging behind. And so this group is upset that they're they're not where they should be. And, you know, and then there's a group over here that's wanting to like go. It feels like a million light years forward. And it's like, you guys, like, you got to read the room. You got to know your moment. And right now, some of these things you're talking about, it's not to say that they're not important, but it's like the bulk of people you're talking to, that isn't the most important thing for them. So, yeah, I mean, censorship is, I think it can be really easily dealt with, which is just allowing more speech. And when it, when you can see in black and white that it is in, inciting violence against another person or persons, that's easy you know or if it's and then people will be like oh well what about you know child imagery and stuff like that of course i'm not saying those things should be allowed (laughs) it's like and and it's like people want to keep doing this well what if what if what if and it's like we have a lot of laws already in place that say what is appropriate and what is not appropriate let's let's go back to that for people that seem to say they love the law (laughs) then let's then let's use it but you know it's it's the pick and choosy stuff that that irks that irks my gears and and i've dealt with people just seemingly kind of uncomfortable with the things i say because i can say something that appeals to someone that's liberal i can say something that appeals to someone that's left I can something someone that's center someone that's conservative and maybe even someone that's far right 
I've had moments where I talk about stuff where I'm like, yeah, I'll die on that hill with someone from the far right, especially when it comes to protecting children. I think that's important. But then it's like, oh, you're a far right Nazi. And I'm just like, Dude, have you heard anything else I've said? And that's where it's just people just want to quickly label because it's convenient, because it's easy, and because that's what they've been taught, unfortunately. Like you said, you know, about um, not challenging authority. We are very much a fall in lockstep, do what everyone else is doing, because that's how you make it in American society, especially. They don't like rebels, they don't like outsiders. And if they do allow an outsider, it's like, why? Why have they let that outsider in? Why does that person get to talk about that particular thing, but these, 10 other people are blacklisted, taken off of YouTube, taken off of Twitter kind of thing. It's like, why does that person get to speak? And, and so that's always what I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to play devil's advocate in my head. And I know it for some people, it's a little weird and off-putting because I can like contradict myself within the same sentence. But it's just like, for me, I'm like, we're, we are so nuanced as humans. We have so many different experiences that dictate how we are and what our personality is like and i think all of the infighting within the left and all of that stuff i fear is just dismantling a lot of the progress and work that so many of us have been trying to do because now it's just oh you don't like this person screw you you don't like that then then you're out kind of thing and it's like how is that progressive how is that left how is that trying to build up our community, because I think we need to, like for me personally, I just, I think we need to focus on what the majority of people are experiencing, because not everyone can relate to certain topics. Like, I know a lot of people can't relate to Palestine, being a Palestinian and, and dealing with racism and discrimination within that vein. So I don't bring it up a lot of times. For me, it's like if I'm talking to someone and I want to meet eye to eye with them, let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about housing. Let's talk about, you know, how is your child doing? Are, are they feeling okay post the pandemic and all of the issues with that? And that's where I think we can find so much more middle ground. But all the propaganda that's been fed to us is just to keep us divided. And the sad thing, I was talking with my husband about this last night. I'm like, the more and more that we continue to be divided, the easier it's going to be both when our economy and this empire falls, when a foreign country comes in here. And a lot of people don't think that that's something that could happen because they've lived in the, you know, what they see is like the great days of the US and, and you know, the US is great and we're winning kind of thing. But we are at a time, I think, I don't know exactly when, it's not gonna happen tomorrow, but it's steadily happening where we have the citizenry so up in arms just against each other. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna make it so much easier for a foreign entity to come in, divide us and keep us divided because we do not have the ability to come together as a cohesive unit and say, okay, we might not agree on X, Y, and Z, but we agree in A through F, you know? And, and we've just, I feel lost sight of that. And that's where it's just, it's really sad because we need to come together. We need to stop fighting about the stupid stuff they want us to be fighting about and talking more about what brings us together. And I hope that as more and more, 
you know, independent channels come up and have these kinds of conversations like you have on your channel that we can that we can hopefully get there. You know, I hate to do this to you because I know, um, do you have 10 or 15 more minutes? Because I knew this was going to be an unbelievable conversation. <laughs> yes, I could, I could keep talking. Sure. Okay. okay, so 15 is good because I got to get my son anyway. But I was like, I know we're not going to talk for an hour because I know we were talking off air. I was like, shit, we're going to probably talk an hour and a half. And I knew, Sorry, okay. I know I could talk no, so much. No, it's great. No, this is awesome. I love this. I was thinking... Um, since we did talk a lot about Palestine and Israel, following this circus that's coming up with the 2024 election, not that even I put a lot of stock into these people, but I think that ideas are important. And that's why I do interview people who are third party candidates and independent candidates. Um, is there anyone on your radar that has a better stance on Israel Palestine or a more all encompassing stance that you think? makes sense to people or is it just if it doesn't apply it doesn't apply where would you rate some of these candidates when it comes to that issue sadly i don't think there's any candidate that is going to be on the ballot that has a stance with palestine that is similar to mine mm -hmm. um certainly not rfk marianne williamson is the same you know i feel like she would just kind of push the same establishment uh rhetoric uh when it comes to cornell west i don't know i the i i've i had heard a lot about cornell west before he was running for for president and then the first kind of entree into how who is cornell west and why does he want to do this was when i watched his jimmy Dore interview and that left a really weird taste in my mouth just because he he said a few things that i don't think a lot of people would notice um like one in particular was when he said arab and it, it, oh, gosh, really? it was that? it was one of those it was very quick it was very impassing and i was just like Oh man, really? Cuz some some one of my uh, followers on Twitter was like you should really look more into Cornell West. Uh he was really good friends with Edward Said. I have Edward Said's books over here. Mm -hmm. I used him in my dissertation for college. Um cuz he talked a lot about orientalism and propaganda. So I was I really yeah, I was I was really excited to get to know Cornell West in that capacity of okay, where do you stand? Like what are you going to do as president kind of thing? And that was just a really sad interview from that that perspective and and he was like making this like list of different people and he said Arab and I was like I don't think he meant for that to be derogatory. I'm like but growing up that was a very derogatory way to call an arab an, an arab so it was like i know i know i'm kind of nitpicking there but it was just i was i was trying to have some some hope and faith in cornell now, west i'm going to be honest with you i honestly believe that that's black talk i'm not even lying okay me. okay um, that's possible yeah. that is i heard that all the time um especially older black people i don't know what it is it's like it's obviously arab and and he knows this. I mean, he's written books about the region. I yeah. mean, he knows that. It's just I don't know if that it's his seventy-year-old coming out or what. But <laughs> you—that's a great point. And and it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I don't. 
it I'm taking it from my personal experience. So it was like, it was one of those things mm -hmm. that was like a trigger for me. I was like, Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, but that's, that's a really great point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that, but I mean, everyone else, I just, I mean, I'm not going to vote for Trump. I'm not going to vote for any of like the Republicans on the ticket because Republicans usually are almost always ultra conservative when it comes to Israel. They fawn over Israel. They want to keep funding them and stuff. I I've tried to, let go of the Palestine issue and look at everything else. I did that with Tulsi Gabbard when um, she was running for president in 2020. I was I was a big Tulsi supporter, even though I really hated her stance on Palestine. And I've gotten to a point where I'm just like, I, I'm tired of bending over and like, you know, saying, sure, fine, you know, this person's okay, I guess, like, I, I'm to the point where I just, I don't even know if I'm going to vote. I know that's not a great thing to say, but I've, I've, I have a lot of apathy towards the electoral process, just because it just seems so ridiculous. I mean, look at what the Democrats are doing right now with Biden, and trying to act like he's going to be fine for another term, even though even Democrats are saying, like over 65% of Democrats want another candidate. Mm -hmm. And Biden, of course, his stance on Palestine is is awful as well. I think he's probably the most racist president we have we have had. Like he's and we've had a lot of racist presidents. <laughs> um to that point, and um I don't talk about him a lot on this forum because I really I hate the guy. I hate Joe Biden. Um, and I don't um, I don't care if people know about that or not, because um, <laughs> I, the worst thing for me is like hypocrites. Like I've always when I was younger, I wrote an essay and I said the three things that I dislike the most are hypocrites, homophobes and racists. He he meets hell all three of them, honestly, because he became the rainbow president once Obama was in. But before Obama was in, I don't know if my audience knows this, but. Biden actually has some harsh rhetoric towards gay people and the don't ask, don't tell rhetoric with Clinton, but people don't want to investigate that. This dude is not your friend. Mm -hmm. This dude is an old Dixiecrat. Is That's what Jim Crow Joe is. And you can say that and not be accused of being up Trump's ass. Like, I'm not up Trump's ass, but I'm just like, I refuse for people to like tell me how to think anymore. And that's what a lot of the liberals love to do. Um, mm -hmm. Conservatives know not to fuck with me when it comes to that because they're already distant enough in views to where there's a buffer there. But these liberals that think that a lot of these blacks and these brown faces are just like, oh my gosh, I love you guys so much. But it's like, okay, if you love us so much, then fucking listen to what we have to say when exactly. we don't agree. And it's like, I understand that some of those other people share your views and that's great keep hanging out with them then you don't have to hang out with me but i'm just saying you're going to get pushback from me and i'm tired of holding the, the water for all these people they're good people but they need to their bubble needs to be burst a little bit because you can't accuse the other side of doing that stuff when you do the same stuff and have mm -hmm. the blinders on because this guy is, is just straight up racist and i don't even spend a lot of time talking about him and his laws that he you know, just just the crime stuff alone should be enough to discount him and discredit him. And Congress is just there, honestly. I mean, she's had a horrible record herself. Um, I don't know who's going to win in 2024, personally. Uh, Cornell West, 
I'm not going to talk a lot about for different reasons because he's probably going to come on the show. Honestly, I'm just going to give my right now. And um, I have a lot of questions for Cornell West. I'm going to be 100 percent honest. Um, I'm not sold on Cornell West. Maybe when he comes on, he can um, clear some things up. But I have quite a few questions for him. But I just don't know what the future is going to look like after 2024. This was a question I had about someone like yourself, I think, would be a great person to ask this question to. This sentiment that's getting getting directed towards Cornell West, um, these people are considering him to vote for him. Is this something that's even sustainable, or is this just a Bernie 2.0 situation where after he leaves, you know, if he gets in or not, do those people just go back to supporting the Democrats like they did with Bernie? They just go back to supporting their team again? I, I think that that's what Cornell's role is, sadly. And it's I, I think that he's a really good activist. And I think that he would be really good on like a presidential cabinet. But as president, I just I don't see it happening because I know the establishment doesn't want him to get there. And I do I have a lot of fears with um, with Cornell West's run being very similar to Bernie's, where he's going to just say, oh, OK, I'm going to pull out of the race, vote for vote for Joe. Um, that's my biggest worry. And then, you know, with Peter Dow coming on as his campaign manager, I have a lot of issues with that as well, because it just for me, it's that are you really taking this seriously or is this just to give the guys of options up and until, you know, Barack Obama makes a call and says, you know, pull out of the race and tell people to vote for to vote for Joe. That's the fear that I have. Um I want to be wrong. I really do. It's like I don't like the cynicism that I have towards people running for president, but it's just it for me it's always like I think a great question would to ask him would be why do you want to be president? Why do you want to have that power? Why is that the course you're taking and not building up more activism with, you know, young black and brown people and teaching them how to be activists and to stand up for racial injustice like i don't know that that's the like if i could talk to cornell that's what i would ask him just because mm -hmm. i i have such a fear he's just gonna do a bernie 2.0 people are gonna be super sad and be all in shock and awe about he turned on us and look at what he's doing i don't know yeah i just um i i kind of ask this question for you and for just the audience to contemplate this stuff, because you guys know that Finkelstein's coming on October the 27th, and he seems pretty openly supporting Cornell West. And I'm just like, is this some kind of a shift from those disgruntled Bernie Crats, or are they just starting to circle around Cornell? And I, I don't know exactly what to make of it. Like when I heard about Peter Dow. I was I I did not know what to do. Like I just I just shrugged my shoulders and it kind of to me that kind of kills the whole point of like his stances like that he had about Palestine. Is that mm -hmm. what does that say about him when he has views that he supposedly have about Palestine and then you hire this guy to be your campaign manager? And then it's like you don't expect people to to point that hypocrisy out. I I just um I don't, there's just a lot to think about really. Um with this upcoming race and uh, what's going on behind closed doors. I know he needs clout, 
And I know he needs like enough eyes on his campaign. But at the same time, I just think there's just a lack of principle in general mm -hmm. in politics. Maybe there just isn't room for principle in politics anymore. And maybe that's where people like ourselves, we seem like we're very cynical because we just understand that um, we know that these people are smarter than this. Um, I honestly believe that RFK Jr., I know that this guy is smart. That was the absolute most important thing I've seen in a long time, the stuff that he was saying about Palestine. Um, it, it has to be because he's compromised. That's the only thing yeah. I can come to. It's got to be because he's compromised. Um, mm -hmm. There's no way you can say that you're going to fight the deep state when you when you have those kind of views. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't make sense. And his uh, daughter-in-law is a former CIA and I think she's now also working on his campaign. Mm. And he's another one of those. It's like, why does why does he get to speak? You know, we know the Kennedys don't have a good legacy of, you know, when they stand up for things, being able to actually follow up on what they what they talk about. I think the Kennedy family has been purposely targeted in a lot of ways. But it's that why why is he being allowed to speak? RFK was such a such an absolute disappointment because I really agreed with, you know, him wanting to hold into account our um, our health institutions, you know, post the pandemic and, and a lot of the things that he was talking about that I agreed with him on. Um, we need a shakeup when it comes to all of these different institutions that aren't working for us. They're working for, you know, their donors, big corp, big, big government. And I was really happy to see that. I was I was very much considering voting for him until his complete switch um, when it came to to Palestine, Israel. And I was like, it's not just because of what he's saying, even though a lot of what he was saying was just the pure, you know, Israeli propaganda rhetoric that is fed to the Israeli citizens. So like everything RFK says, it's like that's why the Israeli citizens, so many of them, are so horrific to Palestinians because they look at them as they're all terrorists, they're all coming to kill us and like all of that stuff. And I was just like, how is such a smart man or a presumably smart man falling for this? Mm -hmm. So it was, it, that was by far the most disappointing part of this, this whole run. And that was really when I was just like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. Like y'all have fun. I'm going to, I'm going to prep. And I'm going to talk about the things that I think are important. So, because <laughs> it's politics at the end of the day. What's it going to do? <laughs> Amira, this was a wonderful episode 66. Uh, and I just want to give you like a second, if you had any departing words, final words for my audience, and tell people how they can reach you the quickest in case they had a question or a comment. Oh, so the quickest way to get in touch with me is going to my Empathic Times channel. Um, you can leave a comment. Uh, you can, you know, email me at endemictimes.com. If you go to that website, that's my blog. And you can send me a message there if you want to get in contact with me. I love hearing from my, my people that watch my videos. And I cover a lot of different things on that channel. Recently, I've really been diving into Maui and what's been going on over there because that is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but I talk about Israel-Palestine. I talk about um, the economy. I talk about war. I talk about the atrocities going on in Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, you name it. Like I've, I've got a lot of different uh, content there that people can check out. And I would just say, you know, to 
just be mindful of the things that you watch, the people that you listen to, take everything with a grain of salt and don't idolize, you know, one or two people just because they have celebrity and, and all of that kind of stuff, because we, you never know who's, who's going to benefit from certain things. Um, and I would just always, as I always end every video to just stay safe, take care, and to just please be kind to each other. Thank you so much. And my audience from Kiko's Freethinkers Forum, I heavily urge um, people, and I don't normally like promote a channel this hard, but Empathic Times needs way more subscribers. Please subscribe to Amira's channel. Like I'm going to keep saying that because um, she was one of the few channels where I can honestly say that this is what, this is a different angle on what I would do, but someone else is doing it. And that's, they're doing their own way of independent thinking and stuff. And so I can only commend you and praise you for that. And so I'm going to tell people, you know, subscribe to Amir's channel. I'm going to link it at the end of the episode description, Empathic Times, and also check out her blog at Endemic Times as well. Thank you all so much, beautiful people. Tomorrow we have a Julian Assange panel with Paula Ayacella and Julia, Julia Hansen. We're going to talk about that. That should be interesting. That'd be Paula's third appearance on the forum. And then on Thursday, we have Gavin Bonney um, to discuss his presidential campaign as an independent out of the state of Oregon. And on Sunday, we have the People's Party of Texas. They are a political party, but they do more community work than anything. And so they do a bunch of great work in the community um, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, People's Party of Texas. Uh, keep following the episodes, subscribe to us for free. And again, enjoy your beautiful days and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Bye.